Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy. And the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in. Welcome to another episode of Inside Cyber Diplomacy with Chris Painter and me, Jim Lewis. Today, we're lucky to have Izumi Nakamitsu, who is the Undersecretary General and High Representative for Disarmament at the UN, and really the driving force between organizing the GGE and the OEWG and helping see them become such good successes. We're grateful for Undersecretary General Nakamitsu taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for doing this. Yes. Thank you for inviting. Why don't we start by asking, where do you think we are after the OEWG and the GGE? Great successes, real progress. Uh, the multilateral and the endorsement by all member states was great. Where do you see things standing now? I really think we made important progress. And the good thing is that, um, you know, I mean, for the past 16 years, all these successful GGEs and, and the latest, of course, GGE and Open Ended Working Group, each of those work uh, really were built on the previous ones. So progressively, we are actually making some good developments of norms, still uh, voluntary, but um, the latest GGE, for example, had a very detailed guidance, I think 10, 11 pages of guidance on how to implement those norms, etc. So yes, I, I think we have made a very good progress. And uh, we also have an opportunity in a new open-ended working group, um, the substantive session starting in December. So we have important work still ahead of us. Before all this began, back before, you know, I, I think at the Munich Security Conference, I saw you before these processes began, which seems like ages ago now. But one of the things that we were talking about is, although it was difficult to be important to make some progress you know, with respect to international law and cyberspace, do you think enough progress was made? Where do you see that particular issue going? Because that always seems to be a very contentious one. Yeah. No, I mean, as you know, Better than I, I, I do, actually, um, but, you know, international law applicability has been one of the more difficult issues uh, that have been discussed. But here again, I think states have made important progress, first and foremost, studying how international law applies to cyberspace. And then, you know, in both GGE and open-ended working group, um, they, you know, further pursued this issue. I think you know, they have affirmed the norms and existing international law uh, sit alongside each other and adherence by states to international law, in particular, um, the charter obligations. Um, you know, this is a really essential framework, if you will, for their further actions in terms of how to further develop their understandings and, of course, strengthen their implementations. Now, the latest GGE, as I said, provided an additional, a very important layer, uh, if you will, 
of understanding on the applicability of international law. They, you know, explore the applicability of provisions of international law, including those derived from the Charter. Um, for example, the resolution of disputes by peaceful means, threat or use of force against territorial integrity or political independence of any state, the principle of non-intervention. And of course, uh, what has been probably one of the most difficult uh, was the applicability of international humanitarian law, IHL. The GGE recognized the need to further study how and when the principles of international humanitarian law, and that is, of course, humanity, necessity, and proportionality, and distinction, uh, how these uh, principles apply to the use of ICTs by states. And, and by, you know, the fact that this, this was discussed further, uh, and then they're coming closer to an agreement that this is an important aspect, uh, I think is an encouraging uh, progress. Of course, this has been you know, particularly difficult because as you know, uh, some states are concerned that uh, by affirming the applicability, they would encourage the militarization of cyberspace. So I, I think these issues can be further discussed and then will have to be discussed and they have agreed to um, exchange views on the applicability of international law and uh, identifying specific topics for further in-depth discussion at the UN. And, and so I'm, I'm quite happy about that. And I, I really hope that also within the OEWG, that the, the next one, they will be able to tackle some of those issues. I mean, it's interesting that one yeah. of the ways to get around the debate not get around it, but to supplement the debate was in the resolution was to, for the GGE was to have people voluntarily contribute. And a number of states did, which, which was good. You know, from your perspective, what's the best way to argue against this perception that if you affirm international law, it will perforce mean that attacks are okay? I mean, what's, what's, you know, it's, it's a kind of a weird argument, but, you know, what's the best way to say, no, that's not really what this means? Yeah, I think the best way to discuss this is for all of us to agree. And, and indeed, we, we actually do agree that these are new domains, uh, and it's not just cyber, uh, but also outer space. Uh, and these new domains, you know, the governance framework is not sufficiently developed. So it's, mm. you know, for us to recognize and acknowledge that they will have to be, you know, a strengthening of that governance. This is a more sort of a, um, a politically neutral way of approaching it. And then the, the fact that they have, they have agreed that they will need to have further exchange of views and, and studies and, and identify specific topics is a, is a very good start. And, mm. and frankly speaking, I think we all know that this has to be done. So that's a good lead in though to a question that we talked about a long time ago, very briefly, but where does cyber fit into your larger arms control and security portfolio? I mean, you have, you have more than cyber on your plate and you raise space as an example. There are many others, WMD. Uh, when you look at your whole portfolio, where does cyber fit in? How do the pieces fit together? 
I mean, we do spend a lot of time on, on cyber issues. You know, this is definitely one of our very important priority issues in the, in the entire sort of disarmament arms control areas. Now, just to talk about arms control and disarmament, you know, it is a toolbox that has quite diverse, you know, instruments. And, you know, these instruments actually include things like prohibition, regulation, control, confidence building, reduction, limitations, transparency, all these things. And this uh, disarmament toolbox is, uh, of course, looked at with, a, you know, against the broader sort of background of what the, the new challenges, emerging challenges will be in terms of international security. Arms control disarmament is all about international security. And what is interesting um, in the cyber is that in this area, I think our discussion, multilateral discussions, really have been focused on or concentrated on the behavior of states mm. um, and, and also uh, enhancing international cooperation. And I think we can say this, you know, say the same about outer space as well. And uh, I think it's one of the reasons is that, you know, it's not possible to actually regulate the technology itself it's it just doesn't you know it, it's it's sure. not something that we will be able to do so whatever the enabling technologies that we have and we will have in the future uh, we need to actually look at behavior uh, of states um, what constitutes responsible behavior what should not be done etc um, and, and that's a very interesting, um, if you will, evolution of disarmament um, discussions. And then, you know, in order for us to, to move towards that responsible behavior, as we have already talked about in GGE and also Open Edit Working Group, there has been a range of voluntary non-binding norms uh, developed, uh, both do's and don'ts. And I think it's also quite important to highlight also the efforts uh, to come up with a very concrete set of confidence building and, of course, capacity building uh, measures. Because without capacity uh, existing in the international community, you can't actually uh, implement the norms that we develop. Let me squeeze in a little follow on Chris that builds yeah. on that. Um, I hope we can come back to CBMs because I think that's a very difficult issue intellectually. Mm. But the, the your work is paralleled in some way by the work of the potential tech envoy and the, his work in developing a digital governance framework or their work. And we know the secretary general has made that and cybersecurity priorities. So how does what you do at, at ODA fit in with the larger UN agenda? That's a very important question. And I was actually going to you know, mention also, I'm sure or I hope uh, you have heard um, the new sort of vision document called Common Agenda of the Secretary General, which was launched just about a week before the high-level GA session. And in that common you know, agenda, that the Secretary General's vision uh, statement, the SG really talks about uh, the importance of those issues, not just from only the hard security issues, but for example, you know, access to, to internet, you know, digital divide and how to, how to fill that gap, etc. So it's a very comprehensive set of agenda uh, covering the entire issue of digital space. Um, and, um, 
And we need to um, make sure that our work is actually part of the broader international communities work to make sure that we go through this transformational process in a peaceful manner. For the time being, I think uh, the work in the OEWG uh, and the member states deepening and, and, and making sure that there will be uh, you know, further progress on implementation of norms progress, potentially also developing further norms, including potentially legally binding uh, regulations to be discussed, of course. So all these things are pieces of the puzzle that really need to fit into the broader Zixor puzzle. And, and it's not always easy because the cyber security issues touches on everything, almost entire spectrum of the UN's work, um, you know, all the way from, of course, the sustainable development goals and, and human rights and, and crime prevention, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then our work is only just one part of it, important part, I would argue, security dimensions. Uh, without that, uh, that Zixor puzzle would not be complete. You will have noticed that the Secretary General in his speech to the, the General Assembly, you know, high level statement, he inserted that sentence again, if there is a world war, uh, I am convinced that it will start with the cyber attacks, massive cyber attacks. So, so you didn't write that, he put it in. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. No, that was always, you know, he inserted that same sentence when he launched his disarmament agenda in 2018. Yeah. Uh, this is his own right. uh, words. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting. It certainly puts a lot of uh, urgency behind the issue. Yeah. So just building, I'm gonna go back to the norms and, and CBMs as, as uh, yeah. uh, Jim mentioned in, in a bit, but, but since you mentioned it, it builds off Jim's last comment. You know, uh, it is good, certainly, the work that's been done in the first committee on these issues. And it is a broader topic, as you say, um, but there are also some limitations. So I, I was very happy, especially given my capacity building role, my GFC role, that um, that there was a lot of emphasis in both of the reports on capacity building uh, and quite a bit of detailed analysis of how capacity building could further international stability, in particular, taking some of those voluntary norms and saying what work could be done. I thought that was really strong. But it was interesting that one of the things, as you know, Cyber is often treated as this sideshow or you know, technical issue that, that the people avoid, and it hasn't been mainstreamed enough. So in the capacity building area, one of the things I think that a number of people pushed for was to recognize, as you said, that it's foundational to achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And although there was a little sentence that said it might be in there, there was reticence to put that in because there was a feeling that's not a first committee issue. Um, so how do we break through that? How do we get, you know, how do we, you know, you want to have individual discussions, but you also want to have this larger imprimatur that, you know, cyber is an important thing for capacity building, for development goals, for all the things you talked about. The common agenda might help, but is there is there a way to make sure that happens? Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a really key issue. I mean, you know, sustainable development goals have, a, 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 I mean, it's, it's a really comprehensive document. I mean, you know, it's, it's in fact a, a very important compass, if you will, for recovery from COVID pandemics. But there are a few issues that were not really, you know, strongly argued or in, in, included in the SDGs. And uh, science and tech issues, one of them, the cyber uh, and AI, et cetera, 
Uh, it's not just cyber. Um, and then, and then there are actually a few other issues that needs to be looked at with additional ambitions, additional action plans, etc. And I think, as you say, the common agenda uh, will be a very important instrument uh, for us to, to achieve that. As you can see, it's, there is a very heavy emphasis on these issues in the common agenda. And uh, if we can actually pursue even some of those I think that will be uh, uh, very important. But my sense actually sitting in New York at the UN is that um, most countries really now understand that this is a central issue and uh, there is uh, really um, heightened interest in the first committee process of the OEWG. But I think across the board, uh, in development corporations included, I think it's, uh, it, it has become a central issue. That's certainly true in Washington now. Did we mention that this would be like a tennis game where <laughs> you would be chasing the ball all around the court? So uh, we didn't. That, that's Jim's way of doing a transition. <laughs> well, because I want to, because um, so I, when we wrote the 2010 and 2013 reports, we actually looked at some of the confidence building measures that came out of the Helsinki agreement mm. and out of the, uh, conventional forces in Europe agreement. And those are not appropriate anymore, right? And so some of the things that we do, exchange of doctrine or even hotlines or, you know, it, it, it's difficult to translate CBMs from the conventional military space into the cyberspace. So what's your, what's your thinking on CBMs? I mean, I don't feel like I've thought my way through them. What would you like to see on the confidence building measures from? Well, I mean, if you haven't really completed your thinking process, then you know, <laughs> we, you do expect us to, to complete it. Well, I was kind of hoping you'd help me out here. Yes. I mean, that would be uh, the clanking noise you hear is my thinking process. And no, no, you the answer. We'll be, happy you in the article. Give, we'll be happy to give you credit. <laughs> when I say we, the two of us. No, I mean, I, I would ask you to, to help us um, because, you know, this is one of those, if international law applicability is, is harsh, I think there is a, a general agreement that confidence building measures will be important. And so this is, and then of course the capacity building, I mean, everyone agrees the capacity building is key both in terms of really genuinely, you know, enhancing the capacities of countries, but also for everyone to be able to implement the norms they need capacity, right? So it's, it's twofold. But I think there is a good understanding and agreement that, you know, it's much better to have confidence building measures and, and making sure that disputes are resolved in a, in a peaceful manner. Uh, after all, that is part of the UN Charter principle. So it's now it's um, it's a time to actually concretize what might be the measures that we could develop in that sphere. And then here at the UN, of course, because it is a charter uh, principle, we are uh, very keen to develop further um, practical measures. And it's something that if we can bring, of course, the technical aspect, but I think what is really necessary is the political will to make sure that the confidence will be built and then, you know, uh, what might be a transparency measures um, and then those things will require a good degree of political will to, to put together. So that's our next step. 
and again, you know, there are some good guidance that member states were able to agree, uh, both in GGE and mm. the latest GGE and, and also uh, OEWG. I mean, some argued that the, I think this is true in a sense, that the OEWG itself was the, the fact you had negotiations over two years acted as sort of a confidence building measure. You know, yeah. That wasn't yeah. the intent, but that's what ended up happening. So just, just to, you've probably heard this to build on that. The next one is five years and some of my former negotiating colleagues are calling it the eternal OEWG. I've heard it called the Star Trek mission, the five yeah. <laughs> and, and one European diplomat said to me, what does that tell you? It tells you that no one will negotiate seriously until the last six months. Yeah. That's probably true, but the CBM part of it is true as well. Yeah. Um, I hope that it's it would not be the case. The fact that there's a mandate that runs for five years Mm. does not have to be that we have to wait until the end of the five years to see, you know, outcomes. I mean, quite the contrary, I think some of the issues, like, for example, how we go about, you know, helping each other with implementation, you know, a, a program of action type of ideas, what might be the substance of it, you know, how to focus on implementation. I think it will not be a, a really encouraging thing if we waited for five, four years to, to, to come up with that. So the chair, the Singapore ambassador here, uh, is consulting, you know, a number of member states to come up with sort of work mm. program um, with uh, uh, some timelines, etc. And I, I think he is in a, a really good place to um, push for, you know, speedy. It has to be thorough. It has to be substantive, but also not to lose the momentum that we have created so far. You know, one of the the great successes, I think, from the the previous uh, OEWG and the GTE, in addition to all the detailed guidance, um, there is a a tremendous amount of momentum that have been created. So I think we need to make sure that we we will take advantage of that and not wait until the end of the five years. It's interesting that, as you mentioned, there's a proposal of a program of action. And one of the you know, criticisms of not just this UN process, but many UN processes is that it's built for member states. It's not particularly good at getting other stakeholders involved. Now, Ambassador Lauber was very creative in trying to get other stakeholder voices, but there were limitations there. And one thing that the program of action or the proposed one talks about is is bringing in other parties. How do you deal with that? I mean, you, you more, than, more than ever before, I think, you have people banging on your door yeah. saying, let us in. I mean, I think this must be very unusual in, in these settings to have this many parties, civil society, industry, or at least select industry and others saying, we need to be a part of this. We don't necessarily need to control it, but we need to be a part of this. How, how do you deal with that kind of pent up or continuing demand in a way that makes it productive, given that there are some states that say, look, you know, we don't recognize the legitimacy of these other stakeholders, we represent our countries. Well, I mean, again, you know, we do have very good lessons learned from the previous OEWG when we organized this so-called multi-stakeholder conference. One positive thing is that both the state's representative side and, you know, other representatives, they found that kind of a platform to be very useful. I mean, I've heard from the state representatives saying that, um, you know, they were very happy 
uh, but also very surprised to learn that they, as they were discussing uh, a number of issues, they were informed by non-state actors that there are, you know, yet new difficult challenges that are emerging. So I think they are, you know, both of them had very good experience. The UN would definitely like to play a, a, a very important role in bringing together those different stakeholders. Um, you will have noticed also that in the common agenda, the Secretary General talked about much more inclusive and networked uh, multilateralism. Mm. And that's exactly what he means. Uh, today's challenges cannot be discussed and, and solved only by state representatives. It simply isn't possible. So, you know, UN as a convener, facilitator, bringing, bringing these different stakeholders together, create platforms for uh, discussions and then concrete elements that emerge from those platforms be fed into intergovernmental parts of the, the discussions. Um, that I think uh, is really uh, one of the, the, the important roles that we need to play as the UN uh, Secretariat. Earlier today, I was co-chairing with WHO BioRisk Working Group, and uh, we are trying to do the same. Uh, we did a, a, a survey to um, private sector entities and something like 85% of all the, the entities that we asked, they really wanted to engage with us and other states. I mean, this is clearly uh, in the sort of overall areas of um, science and technologies. It is just a fact of life. It's not only the governments, but information expertise and, and technical input from those industry people will be absolutely key, absolutely key. When, when, when you think about it, though, a lot of the, this always bothered me a little bit, a lot of the civil society and a lot of the corporate people are from uh, the developed world. And so how, this is going to come out of left field, so I apologize, but what would you think about how increasing diversity in this, how would we how would we expand the, the ranks of those who participate? Because there is, as Chris was saying, there's huge interest in being involved. Yeah. But when you look at who showed up at the OEWG. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a very uh, important point, uh, Jim. And I, to me, one of the positive experiences, I mean, not least because I, I, I am not as experienced as, as you are, Jim, but uh, one of the positive things that we found through the previous GGE uh, was the regional consultations, mm -hmm. which included multi-stakeholders at the regional level. So it was a uh, you know, beginning of you know, very important uh, sort of networking of various stakeholders at different you know, regional level, mm -hmm. not just uh, the Western sort of traditional Western private sector people. That is um, absolutely important. Diversity of voices, diversity of perspectives also, uh, there are different challenges you remember yeah. uh, in the regional consultations. So I think, you know, we need to do a better job in terms of making sure that we have good solid network at all levels. Uh, in the and I don't know what Chris thinks, but I remember sitting in the OEWG and being really impressed at the spread of yeah. capability. And so when yeah. you see like Ghana, I mean, incredibly articulate, very knowledgeable. 
Colombia, a range of countries. I, I don't know what you were thinking. Yeah, no, I, I, I thought that too. I thought it was uh, impressive. And I thought it was a forcing function in a sense mm -hmm. that having the OEWG yeah. caused a lot of these countries, countries to step up their game. And you also saw a progression that the early meetings of the OEWG, uh, people were new to the issue. And as you got to the later meetings, they became much more expert in it. And I thought that, that was that was a very interesting thing. I kind of, I think it goes into, you know, this whole idea of participation. You know, there is a sense in the UN that the UN is the UN and the UN wants to be the center point for, for things. And there's a, you know, there's a reason for that. But there is a lot of work, as you mentioned, being done in regional organizations and other platforms that are not UN owned and operated, so, so to speak. <laughs> How do those things work together? I mean, I think that obviously the UN plays a, a vital role, but there's a lot of other processes out there that are going on. Lots of other capabilities are out there. And the UN has both positive aspects, but also has some limitations to deal with these. How, how do you how do you meld those together? You know, I don't actually take the view. I, I perhaps I'm one of a very few people who don't really say at least that the UN is at the center of the world. Quite quite the contrary. I think when the Secretary General says networked multilateralism, mm -hmm. is precisely that you know we will work with other organizations and regional organizations will be very key partners in this. Like yourselves, I, I was very impressed by those uh, regional consultations of the, the previous GGE. And that's exactly what we need to do. We, we, we could be, in fact, also a key facilitator of, and then, you know, a platform where the, the regions can share their experiences and the UN could actually become a facilitator and, and, and the platform a convening of those various experiences and, you know, feed into and potentially different regions also learning from each other's experiences. So, you know, I, I think it's absolutely key that uh, more partnership uh, and the real substantive discussions take place between the UN and various regional and sub-regional organizations as well. So when you look at the next few years, what would you prioritize on the UN cyber agenda? What are the priorities? Where do you, where do you see the discussion going? What would you want to see come out, not just of the OEWG, but the rest of the work of the first committee? Yeah, I, I think, you know, now that we have actually quite rich norms and, and the guidance related to it, I would very much like to see implementation of those norms really going ahead mm. and um, the, the UN helping with that. I mean, of course, our help is to implement the norms that have been developed. I mean, capacity building has much broader uh, you know, perspectives, of course, but the UN and, and member states that are looking at those first committee type security related discussions of, of cyber will really focus on the implementation uh, of the norms um, that have been developed. And I would like to also see that a uh, very concrete um, capacity building programs, which is demand driven, not supply driven, but demand driven mm -hmm. capacity building programs starting. I mean, it has already started, but very often those capacity building programs tend to be supply driven. Uh, I think we yeah. need to, to turn it around. Uh, and then, of course, you know, some sort of a regular institutional dialogue on cybersecurity, I'm sure this will be discussed. It will be, you know, one of those issues that OEWG will be looking into. So these are some of the first committee 
priorities. And then in terms of a, a sort of a, a substance, I mean, the Secretary General's call on you know, cyber attacks on civilian infrastructure. I mean, during the COVID, of course, the hospital attacks, cyber attacks mm. on, on hospitals. Um, I think this is something, again, that all states really can agree that that should never happen. So some of those really, if you will, a commonsensical, um, you know, norms to be really concretized and then, you know, have a, a implementation measures attached to it, I think it would be really, really good. So I just want to build off one of the things you said about capacity building. I, you know, I, I think, for instance, that the organization, the, the kind of multi-stakeholder organization that I, I help uh, run, the, G, the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise, looks at these reports as a springboard to continue its work. And particularly, as you say, not be supply-driven, but be demand-driven. I, I remember talking to some folks in the Pacific Islands and said, six different countries were offering them this one thing they didn't need and no one was offering the stuff they needed. So, so that coordination function that, that we're trying to play, I think, you know, working with the UN and other institutions could work well. Uh, I, I want to just pivot one other thing that, you know, there's been criticism from the outside of the voluntary, not voluntary non-binding norms saying voluntary non-binding norms, that's worthless. That means nothing, you know, uh, you know, that and a, and a dime will get you a dime, you know, <laughs> so that there's no real, that really doesn't get you anything. Uh, and of course, the counter argument is there is a political commitment when countries sign up to that. How do you kind of respond to that debate? And particularly, you know, I think part of that debate has also been there needs to be accountability when people break those, even though voluntary, even though non-binding, yeah. they break them and they make a political commitment. There has to be some, you know, accountability for that. I certainly don't agree that it is, you know, it is useless. I mean, quite the contrary. Um, there are different ways, a few different ways to um, make sure that this will actually be implemented and, and therefore it is actually very useful. I mean, for example, if these norms integrated into, you know, national strategy or national policy, still better national legislation and therefore in that domestic jurisdiction it will be you know uh, binding or perhaps a regional frameworks um, uh, I think it is you know definitely there to be actually implemented and of course to to make sure that that is actually the case you know there have been different mechanisms if it is not clear-cut uh, sort of legal obligations I mean, human rights, for example, there they are peer-to-peer -peer review processes, even in, in disarmament obligations, there are peer-to-peer -peer review processes that have been invented. Or, as you say, in many of the, the disarmament, there are voluntary reporting mechanisms as well. So, you know, we can use um, some of those techniques or, or methods, mechanisms to enhance the implementation um, so that it is actually useful, um, you know, before it is uh, straightforward, uh, made into a legally binding international treaty. So let's uh, explore what mechanisms are there that we could use. And I think there is a, a lot of potential uh, for us to pursue some of those. The, the original theory at this point in, from 2010, actually 2009, was we modeled some of these things on MTCR, Missile Technology yeah. Control Regime, there you go. which is voluntary yeah. non-binding. Yeah. But there was also the expectation 
Uh, this was easier to sell to Andre than some of the other stuff. The expectation that ultimately, as we've seen in other areas of non-proliferation like the Australia group, building norms, building confidence, building measures would ultimately lead to some kind of binding convention. What do you think the steps are towards that? I still think it would be useful, but it will take us years to get there. What What do you think the steps? And I'm not so sure, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, this is the audience says they like it when we disagree, but we'll save that for another episode. <laughs> right. My sense is that many state representatives, including from Western like-minded, they actually do acknowledge that eventually you know, they might be a useful legally binding instruments that could be uh, established. Many of, interestingly, many industry people, they say they do want to have legally binding, something legally binding, rather than just the voluntary uh, frameworks. So this is clearly something that member states will need to study further. And then to that extent, the fact that they, they want to study, you know, where might be the gap and what might still be the, the work to be left uh, that they have to tackle. You know, they agree that they need to identify those issues. And, and, and so I expect that member states will be looking into this uh, without, of course, saying, you know, definitively yes or no to legally binding instruments. There are a lot of countries who feel that they should be legally binding instruments. To be honest, I think because it's a... Um, the governance framework for cyber domain is not sufficiently developed. I think there is a room for us to, to seriously look into that as well. Of course, that goes back to the accountability issue too, because yeah. even when you have legally binding obligations, and we've seen this in the physical world, people violate them. And so simply having a legally binding yeah. instrument yeah. doesn't Absolutely. get you to the stability you need. So that goes back to how do you make sure there's accountability? And that's yeah. a very difficult issue. And so, I, you know, I, I guess, you know, one of the things that people said uh, in the future, they'd like to see states actually cite some of these norms more when things happen, you know, like the ransomware issues that happen now. Some people said, well, states should be citing the, the due diligence norms from the GG report, mm. or the quasi due diligence norms. It really goes to the future. Do you want to see states actually pointing to these rather than simply being UN documents among experts? Do you, would you like to see states actually using these more? Is that part of the implementation? And really, how do you look at this? Are you optimistic going forward that we're going to make some real progress over the next five years using the five-year time frame because that's the OEWG, but also it's a good time frame? Just as a historical footnote, you can take a little credit because the I know the president was briefed on the norms before he met with Vladimir Putin. And he did raise uh, some of the due diligence norms. Yeah, exactly. Not he didn't say you know paragraph thirteen B, but he he was <laughs> he aware of the and raised. Yeah, he referenced the concept. Yeah, so they they are beginning to have an effect in international discussion. Yeah. No, I mean you know I can't predict the course of um, you know. Oh. <laughs> but uh, what I, as I said, you know, I, I am um, optimistic. I think we have a strong chair of the OEWG. Um, we're working very closely with him. He's consulting countries. He's working on, uh, you know, the sort of a program of work for the next five years. And uh, we have a very solid basis upon which to um, build our, you know, future or further work. Uh, in the next five years. So what more can you ask? Yes, uh, what more? Of course, the uh, more 
amicable global atmosphere. Especially, oh, yes, <laughs> between uh, major powers. But there again, if you actually ask them, do you want a completely divided uh, internet space? I think the answers will be no. So um, they will have to share a sort of uh, biggest level, sort of highest level strategic common interest that is that internet space, uh, cyberspace, uh, should remain stable and uh, um, uh, peaceful and, and open. And I, I think we are beginning to see some of those uh, strategic common sort of understandings uh, to be really going down to the level of uh, having to agree on some of those discussions. I'm talking about the recent uh, US-Russia discussions, etc. So, so we need to push that. But I, I want to always end with a, 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 you know, a positive note. We have solid basis to, to further develop our work. And, uh, and we will, at least I will not miss those opportunities. I will definitely work very closely with states uh, and non-state actors, industry people, etc., uh, to make sure that we will be able to maintain a, a secure and, and stable cyberspace. Well, we won't wait five years to check in with you uh, and see how things <laughs> are going, but certainly thank you for being with us today. It's been really great and uh, certainly a lot ahead. Jim? We didn't ask the question, tell us about how wonderful uh, ODA is. <laughs> and um, and I, didn't, I didn't ask it because I, I think most people know now, first, the support that ODA provides behind the scenes to the mm, chairs is yeah. crucial. And second, they may not be as aware, but not having worked with all the chairs since the dawn of time, your support has been exceptionally valuable in helping guide them. And, and feeling that they had the UN behind them. So this is really a, a success for, for the ODA. And not too easy task too, was selecting the countries for the, the GDE, <laughs> which has become the most popular party in town uh, over the years, <laughs> when it used to be kind of oh, a backwater. So. I'm so glad that's over. I mean, 25 <laughs> is hard to manage. You, we won't tell you what the chair said. And also it was kind of like working for God in selecting the animals to go in Noah's Ark. <laughs> <laughs> and then remember, one turned us down. It's like, I can't believe it. Here, you're getting like the front row seat and you're turning it down. But maybe that didn't come out, but it just... So no, um, great job. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. It, it means a lot. Um, it's of course not me. It's it's of course uh, uh, Jimmy and, and Kirsten and both of them have left. Well, actually, Jimmy is uh, on leave. Yeah. Um, and we have now Catherine, uh, who's also wonderful. We will definitely work very closely with everyone. And great. Thank you. Thank you very much. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Cybersecurity Agency of Singapore and the Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs.